Good morning. morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study the truth about you, your, your nature, your character, the way you've designed your universe to run. We ask that your spirit will join us this morning, we'll draw closer to you, and become more effective in teaching the truth about your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Quick announcement. Some of you may remember a few weeks ago we made an announcement that the uh, Journal of the Watcher e-version, we have an electronic version and the print version now, was awarded a silver medal in the Illumination Book Awards for for um, fiction and Christian fiction. So I just uh, brought the medal in today because we got it in the mail finally with the award. If anybody is interested in seeing that, I'll just leave that up here and you guys can, can check that out. So we're really happy and, and kind of proud that, that it did as well as it did. And you know, the, these are available um, for those who would like them. So. I'm sad it's in the fiction category. <laughs> well, yeah, it's in the fiction category because of the fact that it, it, it's telling the story from the perspective of one of God's watchers, and it's written as one of the watcher's journals. So while we think it's all the, 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 the idea of the fiction is, well, we don't really know if, a, if, if um, you know, one of the watchers wrote it or not. So that's why it's in the fiction category. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so we're doing lesson number 12 in the Quarterly Rebellion and Redemption, and the uh, title this week is The Church Militant. And before we get actually into the lesson, um, you know, I often share with you emails. We get emails and letters from all over the world all the time, and I don't bring probably 1% of them in here, but uh, occasionally I want to share some with you. So I'm going to read one that I received about a week or so ago. I just wanted to share with you a short letter to the editor, which I wrote that was published in Thursday, um, February 25, 2016, a gentleman had written to our local Harrisburg, Virginia paper, the Daily News Recorder uh, record, to point out a number of questions that were not answered in the Bible, plus some others that were, but seemed to go against science. He was implying that the Bible was of little value to thinking person. This really bothered me. I prayed about how to reply to his letter. I once uh, was equally as confused, and I truly empathized with him and with so many others who believe the Bible is full of contradictions and misinformation. I was limited to no more than 150 words, so I just pointed him and others who think the Bible makes no sense or to a rational person to your ministry. I wish now that I had been able to state what you recently said in a Bible study class, that the Bible is not actually an authority on everything in the world. It is an account of how God has been managing the fallout for for mankind from the great controversy. But we can learn much from it And from reading between the lines, it does not hold all the answers, such as how dinosaurs fit into creation. That was one of the questions. However, I did at least get across the message that God expects us to use our brains to understand him, ourselves, and this world by quoting Isaiah 118. I also mentioned that you use the integrative evidence-based approach and developed, uh, that was developed at Common Reason Ministries as being a source for solid answers to the questions this man had presented. You and your ministry have been tremendously helpful to me and my husband. I always thought of myself as having a very strong faith, but it is so much stronger now that I am learning to apply your integrative evidence-based approach to what the Bible tells us about God's true character of love and mercy. My cognitive dissonance has been resolved, finally, and I did not have to wait until I reached heaven. I used to be so, it used to be so hard to believe in the inspiration of all Scripture and also believe that God is love. For 20 years, I actually could not rationalize it. I actually hated God when I first started reading the Old Testament for myself at age 15 and wanted to run as far from him as I could get. It's a miracle I survived those years, but he protected me in my ignorance and folly. He drew me close little by little with amazing personal miracles that built up my belief and love for him. I eventually gave in and rationalized that his ways were beyond my understanding, loftier than my thoughts and my ways. How many have, have had to go there? Well, guys, love, I just can't understand it. It worked for me, but it left me uncomfortable when witnessing to my agnostic and science-minded friends. No one else was willing to give God the benefit of the doubt as I was. Your ministry has changed that. Now the Bible makes sense to me, and I am able to intelligently discuss Jesus and the great controversy with everyone and, and anyone, confident that I won't be thought a fool for believing the God of the Old Testament is love, just as Jesus' is love. Before it seemed I didn't have two legs to stand on, but now I actually have three. God's word, science, nature, and direct evidence from personal experience all come together for me in a meaningful way. It all makes perfect sense now. Finally, I'm totally secure in knowing God is and always was consistently loving toward all, including, including Satan. What cosmic relief. Thank you for so effectively sharing your open-minded, rational approach to knowing our God. No one else that I know is so capably merging science with God's word. It's just 
such a blessing to us believers with scientific training. I also want to say that your analysis on evolution and creationism in your blog is so elegant and in simplicity, brilliant. I have shared it with many. All agree. Um, and, that, and that's basically the end of the letter. So, <clears throat> and, and how many of you have had that same experience of seeing now how the pieces fit? And you don't have to leave your brain at the door when you come to worship God. Yeah. So the church militant, that's the title for this week. What do you think of the title? The church militant. What or who is the church? Who makes up the church? We are. Well, you know, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you say, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. Still another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? What is Paul saying? If he were speaking to us today, might he say, one of you says, I follow Calvin. Another says, I follow Wesley. Another says, I follow Ellen White. Another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? What is the church? Do you think when you've joined a denomination, you've joined the church? Do we show that we are growing up in Christ by our denominational divisions? Well, Paul, still writing the first Corinthians in chapter 3, now we were in chapter 1, now we're in chapter 3, says, Brothers, I could not address you as, spirit, as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I give you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready, for you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. What do you think about this? He's telling them they're worldly because of what was their issue. In China, when Mao came into power, there were 1.5 million Christians. In the 90s, there was a message sent that said, the, this I know people are still well. At that point, there were about 60 million, most of them meeting in homes. What is, I suspect, there may have been very little associated with denominations. It was about a relationship that they had experienced because of scripture, as well as because of uh, God. And we have Jeremiah and Romans both speaking about those true to conscience who have no scripture. Are they members of God's church? Yes, this is a great point. So what is it that when we talk about the church militant, what are we talking about when we talk about the church? Who is the church? If I didn't put this question to you like this and you say the church, what is the, the reflexive thought? What is the common thought? If we went to one of these churches here having worship service today and walked in and asked, what's the church? What would be the answer? Just the people. Just the people or the people of this, this organization? Anybody who believes in Christ? Is part of the church? Yes. That's not how our church sees it. I mean, when, when you're baptized, you're not baptized into the, the denomination, you're baptized into the church. When they stand up and say, who will welcome these people into the church? They don't say, who's going to welcome these people into the denomination? Yeah, they do. They do? Oh, yeah. It's, do I have a motion? It, watch next time at the baptism. As soon as the baptism is over, somebody says, do I have a motion to accept them into membership into the Adventist church, into this local church? And somebody says, motion, second, all in favor, I, boom, you're an Adventist. If you're baptized in Adventist church. I've in the past technically defined it as the church visible and the church invisible. Okay, that's one way to say it, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I guess the, the church visible is a local church regardless of denomination. The church invisible, maybe what happens in China. 
I just want to say the reason why you get baptized into the church is because it separates you from somebody that's not a member so that they know who could vote. You wouldn't want somebody to come into the church and they have no idea of the spirituality. Maybe they're just neighbors and they don't want you parking next to their house. Uh, and then also we're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy well, Ghost. So baptized into the character. Thank you for saying that. Because I was about to make that point. You notice we're talking about baptism in the church, but that New Testament, they were not baptized in the church. They were baptized into Christ. And that's what they were baptized into, baptized into Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they're baptized into Christ. They were not baptized into an organization. That, that's something different. And, and you were correct. The reason they merge those is because, is it based on love for the soul? I love this person who's struggling with an alcohol problem. This person has struggled with alcohol for 30 years, and they've come to Jesus Christ. They've accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they want to, they, they want Him in their heart now, first and foremost. They, they've been struggling with alcohol their whole life. Do they have to give up alcohol before they accept Jesus? Or do they accept Jesus before they ever have power to give up, overcome alcohol? Which, which way does it go? I didn't hear you. Okay, so when they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, the New Testament model is? What, is it, what happens next? That they have to, on their own, on their own strength and willpower, overcome their addiction? Or they're baptized into Jesus Christ? Because we want that person then, once they're baptized into Jesus Christ, this is part of the process of that, that journey forward, opening the heart, experience the power of the Spirit, which gives them power to overcome in their life, right? They can't overcome on their own, can they? But you are correct. Institutions, and I'm not pointing at any specific institution. This is just the downfall of institutions become institutionally protective. We must protect the institution. It's better for one man to die than the nation. That nation was set up by God. This wasn't a man-made institution. It was a God-made institution. But the leaders of the institution became more focused on protecting the institution, such that they killed the Savior and the, and the founder of the institution. We can find ourselves in that same thing when we operate from fear rather than from love. I'm afraid of what will happen in our institution if we let somebody in and baptize them in membership that hasn't overcome their alcohol problem. They could be a member and drink. Oh, no. Or smoke. Or they might be a member and still have a Saturday job. How can we ever let that happen? Will, will the institution be corrupted? We can't let that happen. So we will have a sinner's prayer. And after the prayer, then we will tell them, we've got to put them into doctrinational classes. You've got to go all these things. And here's all the things you've got to do. You need to do this. You need to overcome that. You need to change it. And when you do all that, then you're good enough to be baptized. That's not the church. What I just described, function, that's not the church. Uh, John Wesley had a dream. I shared this with you a couple years ago. I thought it was pertinent to share again. John Wesley had a dream which affected his life and worked tremendously. He dreamed that he died and came up to the gates of heaven. He was anxious to know who had been admitted, so he questioned the, the keeper. Are there any Presbyterians here? None, replied the keeper of the gate. Wesley was surprised. Have you any Anglicans, he asked. No, no one, was the reply. Sure, there must be some Baptists in heaven. No, none, replied the keeper. Wesley grew pale. He was afraid to ask his next question. How, how many Methodists are there in heaven? Not one, answered the keeper. Wesley's heart was filled with wonder. The angel at the gate then told Wesley that there were no earthly distinctions in heaven. All of us here in heaven are one in Christ. We are just an assembly who love the Lord. Wesley was then taken downward, downward to the entrance of hell. He met the keeper at the gate there. Have you any Presbyterians here, Wesley asked? Oh, yes, many, answered the keeper. <laughs> are there any Baptists there? Wesley continued, of course, many. Uh, do you have any Anglicans? Yes, yes, many. Wesley was afraid to ask the next question, are there any Methodists in hell? The keeper of the gate grinned, oh yes, there are many Methodists here. Wesley could hardly speak. Tell me, have you any there who love the Lord? No, no, not one, not one, he answered. No one in hell loves the Lord. What do you think would have been the answer in his dream if he would have said, or then he said it to Adventist there on either side. John Wesley's dream affected him and he, he wrote a lot about the emphasis on the primal issue in Christianity is love. And so these are Wesley's words. What then is the mark? Who is a Methodist according to your own account? I answer, 
A Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Ghost given unto him. One who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. God is the joy of his heart and the desire of his soul, which is constantly crying out, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My God and my all, thou art the strength of my heart, the portion, my portion forever. If any man say, why, these are only the common fundamental principles of Christianity. Thou hast said, so I mean, this is the very truth. I know they are, I know they are no other, and I would to God, both thou and all men knew, that I and all who follow my judgments do vehemently refuse to be distinguished from another man by any but the common principles of Christianity, the plain old Christian teaching that I Renounce and detest all marks of other marks of distinction. Wow. What do you think of that? Did he get it wrong? Do you think that this is why Adventists had such a dialogue when it came to choosing a name for themselves? You know, uh, many of the Adventist founders were Methodists. Came out of the Methodist Church. How many groups does the Bible say will be on earth when Christ returns at the second coming? Yes. And they're described in various ways. The sheep and the goats, the virtuous woman and the harlot, the fruitful vine and the withered vine, the wheat and the tares, the saved and the lost. will be two. So when we think about the church militant, which we're talking about today, what do we think? Do we think of an organized denomination and all those who are like, or all those who are like Christ in character? I can tell you I was raised in this organized church and I was indoctrinated from childhood to believe that it was membership in this organization that made you part of the remnant. And if you weren't a member in this organization, you were in the darkness. In fact, this church I think still says if there's not an Adventist church in a county, it's called a a dark county. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm going to tell you, I, I back up off of that position. Seriously. What's the purpose of organizations? Am I downgrading? Or, no, organizations have a purpose. What are the purpose? And people ask me all the time. This is why our ministry is non-denominational. We are not affiliated with any official denomination because we believe the truths about God are for all people and that the Holy Spirit is working in all hearts who are willing to let the Holy Spirit work in their hearts and that, the Holy, and that God needs people to take the truth about him into every organization of the world. And one of the, my downfallings with the way we do evangelism in this organized church is the way we do evangelism is we go out and try to make everybody join this organization i would much rather go out and teach everybody the truth about god in the setting of the great controversy preparing people to meet christ and let them go back into their organizations and tell people in their organizations the truth and prepare them and so the purpose of an organization is for mission so we can organize ourselves together share common resources pool talents to to uh, uh, create a mission to achieve a mission and in fact, the founders of this church didn't want it to be a denomination. They wanted it to be a movement. For the very thing that I'm talking about, a movement to move people off of the, the old way of seeing God and, and this corruption that had come into the dark ages and free men's minds, rather than call everybody out to join a, a, a single organization and become another institution. There's a comment somewhere? Yes. Uh, so one... Uh one biblical description of the church military, the remnant, which you uh, mentioned a few sentences ago. So the remnant, so Revelation talks about a remnant uh, that will look like the apostolic church. And then Jesus in the Gospel of John said, other sheep have I that are not of this fold. So Jesus does see a distinction between like the fold and and other sheep, the sheep that are not of the fold that are still in the flock. Yeah, okay. So this is out of um, one of the founders of our church wrote this, Christ Triumphant, uh, page 28. It says, There is strife between the forces of good and evil, between loyal and disloyal angels. Christ and Satan are not in an agreement, and they never will be. In every age, the church of God has engaged in decided warfare against satanic agencies. Until the controversy is ended, the struggle will go on between wicked angels and wicked people on one side and holy angels and true believers on the other. And this is Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students, 494. Satan is trying to lead men and women away from the right principles. The enemy of all good, 
He desires to see human beings so trained that they will exert their influence on the side of error instead of using their talents to bless their fellow men. And multitudes who profess to belong to God's true church are falling under his deceptions. Wow. Back a couple of moments. Uh, question here is if baptism is a symbol of being immersed into Christ's character of love and dying his death to self, which comes first, conversion or baptism? Are they talking about the water baptism or the uh, actual baptism? You know, when you convert to Christ, which conversion simply means that your heart of distrust and self-centeredness has been won over to trust in God and surrender to him. I trust you with my life, God. Come in and do your will. Fix what's broken. Search and see the wicked way in me, creating me a clean heart. I've converted over to trust in you. That's conversion. And then once you convert, then the Holy Spirit comes and you're immersed in the mind and, and nature and character of Christ. So you have to be willing to open the heart first in order for the immersion to come. And then you may or may not take a public stand in which, depending, like the thief on the cross who never had the opportunity to take a public stand, and be immersed in water, which symbolically represents the immersion of your heart and mind into the nature and character of Christ via the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how I understand it works. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so Paul writing to Corinthians said they were being worldly. Remember a little while ago? You're being worldly. We have this quote up here talking about um, that people are being led away from right principles. Right principles. Those would be the same, same thing said in two different ways, wouldn't it? Being worldly is being away from right principles, isn't it? Okay, so the question then is, what are God's true principles? What might it look like to be led away from God's principles? Well, what is a principle? L-E, not A-L. What is a principle? It's a design protocol. That's what it is. Some call it law. But when you talk law, we're talking laws of gravity, laws of health. These are principles. Okay, so being led away from right principles is like saying being led away from God's design and how he's constructed reality to work. And how are they led away? By replacing this idea that God's law is the law upon which creation is built, the law of love built right into everything, to this idea that God's laws function no different than what you and I can do, a system of rules that have to be coercively enforced. This is the corruption in Christianity at its root, and it, and it changes everything. Lest the church, rather than being organized around love and truth, becomes authoritarian. We must police the thoughts of our members. We must have a creed. We must have a list of fundamental beliefs. We must test what people think. We must enforce the proper doctrines. Why? Because we believe this lie that God has a list. And if you don't keep his list, he's got his, his angels checking every bad thing you've done, and you've got to have legal accountability. And if you don't, then it's all based on a false law concept. Thus, it led to the dark ages. Look at today. Look at Christianity today. If you've been watching anything about the politics in this country, you'll see that there are Christian people advocating, now look at the method here, advocating for getting hold of government to pass laws to make people conform to their way of doing things, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in how we handle pregnancies, or what, what else it might be. Some people have a belief system, and they want to get hold of the government and force everybody else to practice the way they think it should be practiced. Rather than converting people you convert people, not coerce people. Well, here's another quote. This is out of Christian Education, page 76. The life of Christ was a charged, excuse me, <clears throat> the life of Christ was a life charged with a divine message of the love of God. Notice what the message was. His life was charged with a divine message of the love of God, and he longed intensely to impart this love to others in rich measure. Compassion beamed from his countenance, and his conduct was characterized by grace, humility, truth, and love. Every member of his church militant must manifest the same qualities if he would join the church triumphant. The church triumphant is the church glorified, the church after the second coming. The church militant is the church on earth battling against principalities and powers of darkness. Notice the, the, what we are to become. We are to become a messengers of love who use grace, humility, truth, and love. 
The love of Christ is so broad, so full of glory, that in comparison to it, everything that men esteem as great dwindles into insignificance. When we obtain a view of it, we exclaim, Oh, the depths of the riches of the love of God bestowed upon men in the gift of his only begotten Son. Was Christ at war when he was here 2,000 years ago? As a human being on earth for those 33 years, was he at war? What kind of war did he wage? Notice the, seriously, think about, go back and examine Christ's life and think he's at war. He is waging a war. What weapons did he use? What method did he apply? When Peter pulled out the sword and whacked off the ear, what did Christ say? Put away the sword. What did he say to Pilate when he, when he talked about, you know, if, if this world were my kingdom, then what would my followers do? They would fight physical battles, okay? He wasn't here to use coercive power. That's why Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but says, uh, says the Lord. Because what is it that God wants? Yes? What is discipleship? Wasn't the concept of uh, being related, becoming a disciple of Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Excellent. So what is it, segueing with what I asked, what is it that God wants? You could say he wants us to be disciples. What, what does that mean? Well, in the disciple of Christ time, they did two things. If they were a disciple of rabbi, they listened to the teachings of the rabbi to try to understand how the rabbi lived Torah. And if they also watched the life of the rabbi to see how the rabbi lived Torah. So a disciple of Christ would seem to live the way Christ lives. And how did Christ live? What did the disciples do that Christ did? He helped people? Well, let's see if we can't break this down, what you're saying. Could a person be, want to be a disciple of Christ and observe him, model after him, follow him behaviorally, act the way he acts, dresses the way he dresses? Could they do that and still not be a disciple of Christ? One did. Judas. See, there's something more that he wants than what you're saying. See, they, they sought to understand how he viewed Scripture. There's something more. But there were three things that they did. There's something more. Tell us what it is. They, they tried to emulate how that person lived the law. Christ helped people. He told stories that had uh, metaphorical meaning that got them to think. He asked questions. All of these things disciples could do. And if you look at the Gospel of Commission, you're baptized into what? Okay. So, so, Discipleship. So we talked about Judas. Let's take what you said right there, and let's look at Peter instead. Peter did everything you said. He went out and he did the uh, ministry. He went out and, and he performed miracles and all these other things he did, modeling after Christ. Yet in the upper room, before the crucifixion, everyone else says, you're all going to leave. Peter says, not me, Lord, not me. I'm not leaving. Was Peter lying? No. So Jesus could trust him since he was not lying. I trust you then, Peter. You'll be there for me. No. Wait a second. He's not lying. He still can't be trusted. Something more. This is, what, this is what we need to get to, something more. And so Jesus says to him, Peter, after three and a half years of doing all this stuff you said he's doing, Peter, Jesus says to him, when you're converted, feed my sheep. Well, this is doing the kinds of things that Christ did. Here's the critical thing. Here's the critical thing that hasn't been said yet. What God wants from us, he wants a change of heart where we love him more than we love ourselves. Well, it's opening the door to God's grace. It's allowing God's grace to move on the individual, and you will grow in God. And can God get our love and trust, which is what he wants. He wants our love and trust, that we trust him with our life. See, Peter loved Jesus, but he still loved himself more. So when his life was threatened, he denied Jesus to protect himself. The critical issue is, have we been one to trust that we surrender self and we come to love God and more than we love ourselves? That's what God is trying to bring us to ultimately. And then all these other things we do will have power, but they're really pretty meaningless until our hearts are truly changed. Okay? And so, can God get what he wants? Our love and our trust, all the way down to the core depths of our soul by the exercise of might and power. If we're willing, we will grow in grace. Can he get it by the exercise of might and power? A child is not like an adult. So let's look at God's weapons and how he uses his weapons. 
Because we're talking about this war, and it's not coercive. He can't win by coercion. He, he has to use some other weapon. One is what you're saying, the weapon of truth. And what does truth destroy? It absolutely does. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It destroys the lies. It wins to trust. How about the weapon of compassion? Did Christ use the weapon of compassion when he was on earth? And what does it destroy? It disarms the guarded, the person who are fearful and, and afraid to trust. It. The compassion disarms that. What about grace? Did, did Christ use grace? It overcomes prejudice. What about humility? It defeats pride and arrogance. What about gentleness? It vanquishes cruelty. Peace triumphs over uncertainty. Forgiveness eradicates resentment and bitterness. Freedom destroys coercion and creates the atmosphere for love to grow because love can't grow in an atmosphere without freedom. Life, notice this is out of, out of Timothy, life destroys death. By his death he destroyed, um, uh, by, well, that's, that's the Hebrews I was quoting, but he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light in Second Timothy. Life destroys it. And then love destroys selfishness and fear. Perfect love casts out all fear and transforms the soul. Why don't we get more victories in the church? Because we too often in the church, this is my view now, substitute Satan's methods for God's methods. And you cannot win God's cause by using Satan's methods. And this is what Christianity has fallen into. They have a good cause, and you pick your cause. It doesn't matter. Say baptism by immersion. We believe that this is biblical, and we think people should be baptized by immersion, and so we go out there with the force of arms and force everybody to be baptized. It can't work. You cannot get, win God's cause by the use of might and power, by using Satan's methods. So back over these weapons I just used, I want to show you how some of them get substituted and what Satan's methods are. Some of these are easy to see. Truth destroys lies and wins to trust. So what's Satan's method? Well, Satan is the father of lies. It's an easy one to see. Have you ever seen deception used in the church? People are afraid to be truthful. I have seen it when a, when a pastor is uh, asked to move to a different location. Rather than being truthful as to the reason, they'll get up and they'll tell the, the, the membership a lie. He took a call. He was fired. He took a call. You haven't seen that? Why was he fired? He didn't agree with the, with the way we're teaching things here. Let's not have a discussion. Let's not let the church discuss the different issues that the pastor might bring forward. They might think, they might learn something. We, want, we, don't, want, we don't upset that. He just took a call. Let's, we're so happy for you. Compassion disarms guardedness. Satan's method is to justify guardedness. We need to protect the organization. We need to be guarded against influxes of wrong ideas. We need to be thought police. We need to be guarded. Grace overcomes prejudice. Satan's method is to promote prejudice. Think of the prejudicial Christian organizations throughout history. How about the KKK for one? What did they burn in the black people's yards? Crosses. I mean, is there any disconnect here? Wait a minute, they're representing Jesus Christ and they're behaving this way? What? How, how corrupted can the thinking be that people can believe they can be Christian and behave this way? But they do. How about the Westboro Baptist Church of Kansas? who go out and picket at funerals of gay people with signs that God hates fags, God burns fags in hell. How corrupted must their thinking, what kind of God do they worship? Humility defeats pride and arrogance. Satan's method is to justify pride and arrogance. How do we see that in the church? We're the remnant. We've got the truth. Those are dark counties if we're not there. Is that not spiritual pride and arrogance? Of course, that was prophesied in the church of Laodicea. We are rich and in need of nothing. We've got it. Can also go in other directions. We have a doctoral degree in theology. Who are you? Jesus? You haven't gone to our schools. You don't know anything. Who are you to teach us? Do we see that today? Gentleness vanquishes cruelty, but Satan's method is to justify cruelty, but call it justice. 
biblical justice. What are those people who drug the woman out in adultery say that needed to be done? We need to stone her. That's the just thing to do. Justice requires. She must be, she must be stoned. The law requires it. Yeah, the law. And, and in order to be just, we have to have punishment. Okay, because that's what the law says. God, then, is required today to punish the wicked. God must torture those who haven't had their penalty paid. How about peace triumphs over uncertainty? Satan promotes uncertainty. How can you know what the will of God is? Do you really believe God wants you to do this? No one can really know. How do you know that you can trust the Bible? He promotes uncertainty. Forgiveness eradicates resentment and bitterness. Satan promotes accountability, record-keeping, legal pardon, i.e., we don't forgive until the person repents. Thus, we must punish the unrepentant. If they're not unrepentant, we have to have proper accountability, and we still must have punishment. And one day we'll sit in committees in heaven, and we'll look over those records, and we will find those sins that haven't been repented of, and we will uh, mete out the proper punishments. We will not forgive them. Oh, no, 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 they didn't repent. And we teach this ugly, ugly refuse as biblical. It's not. How about freedom destroys coercion and promotes love? Satan's method is to coerce. The center should be burned at the stake. Think of the Crusades. Think of the Inquisition. Or today, let's get the hold of our governments and let's pass laws to coerce people to observe our morals rather than convert them. Life destroys death. And to understand, how is it that in Revelation, Hades and the grave, uh, death and the grave are thrown into the lake of fire and thus they're killed? How do you kill death? Think it through. How do you kill death? By by giving life. And thus you understand the fires are the fires that you read about in in Daniel chapter 7, where the Ancient of Days takes his seat and rivers of fire come out from before him. And 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands and thousands stand. And this is the fires that Adam and Eve used to wear as clothing. This is the fire that Moses had on his face when he came off the mountain. This is the fire of God's life-giving glory that the whole universe is bathed in again once sin is, is gone. So there is no more death in the grave. It's consumed with life. This is how you destroy it. But Satan teaches us that you destroy death with death. That God becomes the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and torture. And God will kill the unrepentant in the end. God kills them. <laughs> Love destroys selfishness and fear and transforms the soul. But Satan's method is to replace love with fear and selfishness and thereby destroy the soul. And how does he do this one primarily? God's law is no different functionally than the laws that you and I pass. We can't create reality. We can't create space, time, energy, mass, matter, life. We can't do it. So we create rules. And then we threaten people, if you don't keep our rules, we'll punish you. And thus we teach God runs his government like we do. He makes rules, and he's more powerful. And if you don't do what I say, then I'm going to punish you. And what does that kind of thinking lead? If you're not sure, just think about this. You're driving down the highway here in town, driving down the city. You look up, and there's a police officer following you. You take a left, he takes a left. You take a right, he takes a right. Do you feel more, I feel so safe and secure here. (laughs) I'm glad to know there's a police officer nearby if I need one. Or does your fear level go up? (laughs) Why does your fear level go up? Because it is prima facie evidence of the way our governments work. They're coercive. You're feeling threatened. Even if you've done nothing wrong, you're, what does your mind begin to do? Is my, regi- to get my registration done? Do I have a light burned out? Did I, did I make a wrong turn back there? You start running through this list of everything I did wrong because you're afraid. This is what, this is what coercive governments do. And this is what we do to our kids. We teach them, God is recording angels. He's following you everywhere you go. And, and, and if you take the left, well, you're recording angels. They're watching where you go. If you make that wrong left turn, he's writing it down. Unless you go in the theater. Unless you go in the theater, yeah, they're blind if you're in the theater. They can't go in with you. Stop at the door. No, that's that's no. That, so you got confused, Russell. You forgot the lesson. The guardian angel stays at the door. It's the recording angel goes in to record all the bad stuff you've done. Okay, you just have no protection anymore. Okay. But do you understand the corruption and what does that do to to young people? They live in terrible fear, and so we teach doctrines. And what are most of the Christian doctrines designed to do? 
to alleviate your fear by protecting you from God who you're not terrified of. So we have an advocate with the Father. Yes, there's going to be record. And all the bad stuff. And God's going to, as he hears this stuff, he's going to start, you're going to see the blood pressure rolling. He's going to get rageful. But Jesus will stand up and say, my blood, Father, my blood. Oh, thank you. Okay, I feel better now. And we teach these things. Or, yes, but if you've accepted Jesus, the robe covers you. When the Father looks, he can't see anything but perfection. And he smiles and says, perfection, because your, your wickedness is covered by a robe. Or in our traffic analogy, God is following you around. Don't worry. Don't worry that you're speeding. Oh, because oh, we all speed times, don't we? Don't worry. Jesus is on board with you, and he's got a heavenly radar jammer. And the Father can't record how fast you were actually going. Does that give you security? This is why people live in fear, because it's all corruption. It's a false law construct. This is what Daniel prophesied about. A a system would rise and seek to change God's law. And that's what happened. The whole Christian world is infected with this idea that God's law is no different than ours. And we are called back at the end of time to come and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that. Come worship creator God the designer of reality, how life is actually built to operate. So faith I live by 305. It says, has God no living church? He has a church, but it is the church militant, not the church triumphant. Remember what we're talking about, waging war against selfishness and fear and lies. We are sorry that there are defective members. Well, the Lord brings into the church those who are truly converted. Satan at the same time brings persons who are not converted into the fellowship. While Christ is sowing the good seed, Satan is sowing the tares. There are two opposing influences continually exerted in the members of the church. One influence is working for the purification of the church and the other for the corrupting of God's people. Do you believe within the church there are two influences at work? Two human influences at work. Those whose hearts have been purified by the Spirit and those whose hearts are hardening into opposition to God in the church. Could that even be in leadership? Well, just look 2,000 years ago. Who led in the crucifixion of Christ? Was it the laymen or was it the church leaders? In fact, if you look at human history, look at human history. Which group of people have been foremost in opposing God's work on earth? Who was it that built the golden calf? Church leadership. Aaron, the high priest, built the golden calf. Who was it in, in, the, in the Old Testament that was constantly leading the people to Baal worship? At kings and? Church leadership. The prophets, the false prophets, and, and the priests. Who was it at the time of Christ that was opposing him? How about in the Dark Ages? Who was it that was really leading the world into darkness? Yeah, so this, I think, is quite true. And then I found this one. This is a review in Herald, July 26, 1898. The church militant is not, in this world, the church triumphant. From generation to generation, the enemy has been marshalling his forces against God. His enmity against the law of God has increased as time has passed. And his followers are at enmity with anyone who has moral courage to depart from evil and bear witness to the truth. They pay no respect to the divine law, and they are strict in enforcing human laws. Do you you hear what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. They are not in harmony with God's will. They are not attracted to his right, by his righteousness. In their human judgment, they will condemn men who consciously keep, conscientiously keep the commandments of God. But God's children will not be frightened from their purpose by the proud, presumptuous opposition of evildoers. By faith, they see a crown of life awaiting those who are victorious, and they press forward to the mark, the prize, the high calling of Jesus Christ. Do you see the tension between the laws of man and the laws of God here? And how is that historically interpreted in Adventism through the laws of man? Have we done it? We've taken this quote and quotes like it, and we simply distill it down so we present our particular spin on it, and we still promote the laws of man. Instead of the laws of God. How do we do it? The Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience. There's no reason other than God is powerful and he decided arbitrarily that this day is going to be holy and he's testing your obedience. You better pick one or the other. And if you don't, well, there's no problem with that other than God's going to say you're a disobedient child and I'm going to have to kill you. Do you understand that one of Satan's allegations against God in heaven is that God is arbitrary and his laws are arbitrary. Thus, when you teach that the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience, you're simply teaching that God's laws function is no different than ours. Understand this. The Sabbath was created. It was constructed. It was built. It wasn't declared. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall the labor do all thy work. Seventh day is the Sabbath, Lord thy God, in it thou shalt do any labor, blah, blah, blah. For six days, the Lord created the heavens, the earth, and so forth and so on, and rested on the Sabbath day. And therefore, or thus, he blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. How about something like this? He created Adam and Eve, breathed into their nostrils the rest of life, and therefore, they became living beings. You don't see the connection? And therefore, and thus, he blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Most people hear that and say, it was a declarative. He declared it to be holy. No, it was constructed holy. It was designed holy. It was designed, it was, he rested from all his work. Think of the context. Yes. Sir, so are you saying that those people who crucified Christ and then went back immediately to keep the Sabbath were doing Exactly what you said. They didn't keep it holy. Of course, they didn't. By the law. Yeah, you can't. You can't keep the Sabbath holy by behavior. You can't. And in fact, if you want to really think about this idea of keeping it holy, which day of the week in the world is probably the most hedonistically indulged upon? Isn't it? It's the, it's the weekend, it's the wild day, Friday night and Saturday, right? Partying day, right? Does the, all the billions of sins committed upon this day make the Sabbath less holy? Can man do anything to make the Sabbath less holy than it is? Can you make it, do anything to make the Sabbath more holy than it is? No, you're not keeping the Sabbath holy. You're keeping yourselves holy. The Sabbath is holy. It just is, because that's how it was built. Okay. And this is what people don't get. When they read the fourth commandment, they think that God made a declarative, an arbitrary decision. I will declare this day to be holy, therefore it is. No. The Sabbath was created in the context of what? What was happening in the universe? A war over God's right to rule. Satan had already started a rebellion in heaven. That's why you find a serpent in Eden tempting them immediately because this is already going on. And God gives evidence of himself all week long. And on day six, he says, universe, you've heard the allegations. You've seen the evidence we've given. Now, universe, take 24 hours aside. Think for yourself. Come up to your own conclusion, who you trust. I rest my case. What does it say about God that in the context of an assault on his right to rule, rather than using might and power, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, rather than using might and power, he presented truth in love and left his creatures free. The Sabbath is holy because it was constructed for a purpose in a particular need in universal history. And thus, each week, we have a reminder that God leaves us free. Truth, love, freedom are embodied in the construction of the Sabbath. Thus, it's holy because it's the emblem of God's character. It's a sign of his character. It was built this way. Constructed, just like Adam and Eve in Eden, they were also constructed holy. Because they were free sentient beings, they could defile themselves. The Sabbath can't defile itself. It's just a, 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 a state of time, a period of time. Uh, the question. Yes. So talking about holiness, makes me think of the, the burning bush and what made that holy was God's presence. So if it's God's presence that makes a day or a person holy, do you think that possibly he might put his presence in the seventh day, in maybe a different way than he does the other days. How many days a week did God come to visit them in the garden? It says that every day in the cool of the day he walked with them. Were those, were those days holier because he was there, and then until he got there they weren't holy? Now, now those days are holy? No. The answer to your question, as I understand it, is in its construction and creation they are different. Days one through six, what do we learn about God? That he has power. He's powerful. That's what we learned days one through six. He's making stuff and, and huge displays of power. If you understand a gram of matter, we turn into energy. We call that a nuclear explosion. That he spoke matter into existence, this whole solar system, our sun. This was, a, this, this was might and power days one through six. So we learn he's mighty and we learn he's powerful days one through six. On day seven, however, we learn the character of the one who wields the power. That he rests and restrains his use of power. He doesn't coerce. He gives people freedom to think. Thus, this sets him apart. In the same way, if you read in the Bible, you get a similar analogy when it talks about 
The um, second temple will be more glorious than the first temple. Everybody familiar with the, the prophecy? But the second temple was bitty and small compared to Solomon's temple, and the ones who laid the foundation cried at it because it was so small. What made it more glorious? Was it his presence? But wait, when Solomon's temple was dedicated, why couldn't the priests enter the day of Solomon's dedication? Because God showed up physically, visibly glorious. They couldn't enter. He was physically present in both temples. So it wasn't just his presence. It was the type of his presence. In the one, he showed up with power. In the other, he showed up with humility and self-sacrificial love without power. And that was more glorious. And thus the Sabbath is the day that's holier than all the other days because it's the Sabbath, you see, his character revealed that he creates a day where he steps back and restrains his use of power. I rest. I'm not, I'm not working today. I'm not building stuff. I'm not. You take 24 hours aside. And that's in its construction. And once it's built, it's built. It's historic now. And thus the Sabbath becomes a sign. He characterized it very good that it's type of presence. Yes. And, and thus the Sabbath becomes a sign. In the same way that if I were wearing a, a crucifix or a cross, the crucifix or a cross is a sign. That's all it is, signs. Think what signs are. They aren't realities. They're signs. The reality is the character of God. The Sabbath is a sign of that character of God. The Sunday, how did it become a day of worship? Because it was built that way? It wasn't built that way. It was declared to be that way. Thus, the Sunday is a sign of declarative imposed law. Whereas the Sabbath is a sign of creation, how things are built to actually work God's character of love. That's what they're signs of. But you can worship on the Sabbath. You can worship on the seventh day of the week and be a worshiper of the beast imperialistic law when you teach that the Sabbath is an arbitrary test and if you don't keep it, God will use his power to punish and kill you. Then you're worshiping the beast on the seventh day. This is what the Jews did that you asked about a moment ago. Yes? Uh, Yeah, so I was going to say, in the very last days, which we're approaching, Sunday will be a sign of those who believe in a God of force and coercion that you can legislate morality and sabbath will be a sign of those who believe in in the god of free choice yep regardless of which day they worship on those signs are true regardless of which day they worship on see if you want see man looks on the outward appearance the lord looks on the heart man wants to look to see which day you're going to church on and if you're not going to the right church they're going to declare you having the mark of the beast wrong 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 the mark of the beast is being marked in character to be beastly to, 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 to use the principles and methods of the beast. We didn't get to it, and we're running out of time. I'd like to get to it. The lesson talks about, in Revelation, in one of the churches, the synagogue of Satan. What is the synagogue of Satan that's referred to in Revelation? The hearts and minds of well, the Well, what is the temple of the spirit? You, each one of you, are a temple for the spirit. If... What's required for you to be a temple of the Spirit? The Spirit to be there. If the Spirit isn't there, you're not a temple for the Spirit. Does that make sense? So if some other Spirit's there, a false Spirit, a satanic Spirit, then what are you? A synagogue of Satan. Some of you may be uncomfortable with this, so let me read you a couple of quotes. Remember how we can reason this out in ourselves, but then there's a few that still need the quote. This is out of um, Christ Triumphant 249. The great controversy between the prince of light and the prince of darkness has not abated one jot or tittle of its fierceness as the time has gone on. The stern conflict between light and darkness, between error and truth, is deepening in intensity. The synagogue of Satan is intensely active, and in this age, the deceiving power of the enemy is working in the most subtle way. Every human mind that is not surrendered to God and is not under the control of the Spirit of God would will be perverted through satanic agencies. The enemy is working continually to supplant Jesus Christ in the human heart and to place his attributes in the human character in the place of the attributes of God. He brings his strong delusions to bear upon human mind in order that he may be, con- he may be the controlling power. How does he control? By getting us to believe falsehood. That's how he controls us. The biggest falsehood is God operates under an imperialistic dictatorship. That is the way he gets most people to, to follow him. He seeks to obliterate the truth and abolish the true pattern of, godly, of goodness and righteousness in order that the professed Christian world shall be swept into to perdition through separation from God. He is working 
in order that selfishness shall become worldwide. Christ came to the world to bring back the character of God to humankind and to retrace on the human soul the divine image. Wow. Did you hear anything? Christ came to the world to pay the legal penalty of our debt and to appease. No, to, to propitiate. No, he came back to bring the character of God and to put it back in the human soul. Through his entire life, Christ sought by continuous, laborious efforts to call the world's attention to God and to his holy requirements in order that the people might be imbued with the Spirit of God, might be actuated by love, and might reveal in life and character the divine attributes. Notice the focus. Regeneration, recreation, writing the law in the heart and mind, getting the mind of Christ, becoming partakers of the divine nature. That is Christ's mission to restore us back into godliness. One more quote. CET 207. And it's, Satan has a large confederacy, his church. Christ calls them the synagogue of Satan because the members are the children of sin. The members of Satan's church have been constantly working to cast off the divine law. Isn't that interesting? And confuse the distinction between good and evil. Satan is working with great power in and through the children of disobedience to exalt treason and apostasy as truth and loyalty. And how do they do this? Not by getting you to accept the wrong day, but getting you to accept what the wrong day stands for. And the wrong day stands for God's law as a system of imperial rules imposed that require external punishment. That's what the day stands for. And even if you're a Saturday worshiper, but you believe God made up a system of rules and he'll punish you for breaking them, you have the mark of the wrong day. Yes. Getting back to his question, uh, which goes along with the same thing, the reason the bush was holy was not because God declared it to be holy. The reason the bush was holy was because God's presence was there. That's a different degree of holiness than what the Sabbath is. God is present all days. He can be present all days, but this is genetically made different. Yes, it, and it's, yes, it's, it's made different, and it reveals his character more distinctly than the other days of the week. It, it, it reveals it more than a bush or, or Mount Sinai or something else that's been shaken by his presence. That's right. If you get your mind around where this is leading, it's just so freeing, it's so powerful. And this is a message that it's a light in the world for Christ's return. The truth about God's character of love and its transforming power. And he's wanting to prepare a people who said when he comes, as John says, we shall see him face to face for we shall be like him. That's the goal. That is the goal. And this other theory of imposed law leads Christians into a trap where they are trapped in addiction and violent cycles and there's no freedom out because what they're seeking is they're not seeking transformation, not experiencing regeneration. What they're, what they're looking for is legal pardon. And I've got everything, all my sins, past, present, and future, placed upon Christ at the cross. He paid the penalty. I accept that penalty. I'm pardoned. I've got my certificate to heaven. Good. It's a fraud. And that's why, as you know, the data... There's no difference in Christian homes and non-Christian homes in violence, addictions, child abuse, spouse abuse, and so forth and so on. Because hearts aren't being changed because they're seeking the wrong solution because they've got the wrong problem. They think they're in legal trouble. I think you connected the dots, but church militant, synagogue of Satan, there's a relationship there, I think, that you've implied. I'd just like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, the church militant and synagogue of Satan are at war. Unfortunately, you'll find members of both in the same organization. You'll find members of the, of the, of the uh, uh, church militant in an organized church, and you will find members of the synagogue of Satan in the organized church. Because it's not, you can't separate them on this earth. The wheat and the tares grow up together until the harvest. Isn't that what the Bible says? Okay, And the way you, I can identify them is by their character. Do they practice the methods of truth presented in love, leaving others free? Or do they believe it's their place to take hold of coercive powers and coercively enforce their religious views on others? That is not God's way. He's never done it that way. Christ has never done it that way. But you've contrasted the church triumphant with both of us, right? No, the church triumphant are, those, are the members of the church militant who... Uh, s- stay loyal through to the end, and thus they are victorious and become the church triumphant. Yes. <laughs> what I'm gleaning from this is that when you misunderstand God's law, you misunderstand the definition of the church, <laughs> over, you misunderstand the definition of militant, 
And you also misunderstand what triumphant means. Yep. And if you, and if you substitute man's law for God's law, you, you, you end up with opposing oh. definitions of all those. All the terms change. That's right. That's right. Thank you, Russell. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is love and who created this universe to operate in harmony with your nature of love. We see only partially, Lord, through glass dimly, and even through the, 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 the darkness of our own minds, what we see is how corrupt this world is, how far from your ideal that we are. But, Lord, we long for our transformation, our healing, our, our restoration to your original plan. So we ask for your spirit to come, enlighten our minds, help uh, eradicate from our thinking the, the distorted concepts, bring our characters back into harmony with you, send the spirit who can take all that Christ has achieved on our behalf and reproduce it in us so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We pray. Amen.